Financing requirements are a little different than uh, our friends to, in the U.S. We don't typically have a chance to uh, do the no money down thing. Our mortgages are not generally assumable because our financial institutions uh, demand qualifications at every turn and twist in the application process. So yeah, there are a lot of differences. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Jules McKenzie. Today, we're talking about real estate investing in Canada. Jules has a ton of experience investing in real estate in Canada. He's Canadian. He's a police officer. He's going to tell us all about his experience. And today, you're going to learn some of the unique features of uh, unique realities of investing in rental real estate in Canada. We have different rules down here in the US and you need to be prepared. I know we have Canadian listeners out there. So if you haven't jumped into the pool yet, you're going to get the education on how to make it happen. If you're in the US and you're looking to invest internationally, then hey, maybe Canada is one to consider. I learned plenty and I'm sure you will as well today. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy apartments with passive investors and share the return. Love learning new things. I love traveling to Canada. So this is a great fit. And you're going to learn some new things here as well, just like I did. Without any further ado, here we go with Jules McKenzie. Jules, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you. Uh, you have a lot of great things to teach our listeners. Kind of before we dive into it, though, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? So um, my uh, daytime full-time job, for lack of a better term, is of a police officer with the Rama Police Service. We police Casino Rama and the uh, First Nation uh, territory of uh, Rama. I've been a police officer for 31 years, 11 of which was with the Ontario Provincial Police. So up in uh, Canada, the, we have provinces instead of states, and the OPP would have been like the state police, except it's uh, provincial. And uh, probably about uh, 21 years ago, I joined, or yeah, 21, 22 years ago, I joined uh, Rama Police. And I fell in love with the Aurelia area, which is uh, just on the west side of Lake Kuchiching, across the lake from uh, Rama. I started investing in uh, 2001 after we saw a TB infomercial. A couple of years later, I joined the Real Estate Investment Network, which is uh, a networking uh, type of uh, organization, an educational organization that uh, invests based on economic fundamental principles and have been investing that way ever since. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, you're based up in Canada. A lot of uh, the investors we talk with on this show are either in the U.S. or they invest in the U.S., but you're investing in Canada, which I'm sure is very unique, has, presents unique challenges as compared to residential real estate investing in the States. Yeah. we uh, In the wintertime, we have a lot more snow to remove. <laughs> <laughs> Financing requirements are a little different than uh, our friends to, in the U.S. We don't typically have a chance to uh, do the no money down thing. Our mortgages are not generally assumable because our financial institutions uh, demand qualifications at every turn and twist in the uh, application process. So yeah, there are a lot of differences. Hmm, interesting. I can imagine that extends to... Uh, things like evictions and landlord, other various landlord tenant law items as well, too. 
Yeah, and I think very much like uh, our uh, counterparts in the United States, I mean, it really depends on uh, who's, uh, who's at the helm in uh, government. And then a lot of times it's uh, public sentiment as well. So right now, our uh, governing body for evictions in uh, the province of Ontario is uh, the, the Ontario Landlord and Tenant Board. We're governed by the uh, Residential Tenancies Act. They've uh, set a cap as to how often, uh, how much we can raise our rent. And it's uh, usually once a year by a, uh, an amount that's uh, based on the Consumer Price Index they have very strict rules for, for evictions and very uh, methodical and detailed processes to follow if you want to uh, you know, conduct an eviction for non-payment of rent. And uh, at times it can, it can be difficult, but uh, I say that renting anywhere in North America, I believe uh, wholeheartedly that it's uh, 90% selecting uh, great people to uh, rent your properties to in the first place. And then doing what you say you're going to do. If you're going to say you're going to look after uh, and maintain the property, then look after and maintain the property. If uh, there's a problem, you gotta you gotta be ready or have your team ready to deal with it uh, promptly. Totally, totally agree. Now, when it comes to things like you know rent bumps, like you said, they're capped versus the CPI. Are there any? things you can do, I don't want to say to get around that, but in, for example, in California, they have rent caps, but I think the conditions are different if you renovate a certain percentage of the property and completely turn it around. Does that change the situation? Are you only talking about like annual rent bumps or are you still uh, stuck at the CPI? So two things on that. Um, When the tenant uh, decides that they're going to leave on their own, and if they've been a tenant for a very long time, once they vacated the property and you go in and do your thing and clean it up and paint it up and get it ready to re-rent, you can set the rent to whatever you like. Okay. Um, in Ontario as well, there's a, a thing in the media called uh, renovictions. So that's when the landlord approaches the tenant and uh, offers them uh, a financial incentive to leave the property so that uh, it'll be vacant and they can turn around and rent it. Uh, or not rented, but uh, renovate it and then re-rent it for uh, for a higher rate. This has been frowned upon and there are laws coming down uh, the wire uh, to, you know, either dissuade landlords in Ontario from doing this or, uh, you know, certainly discourage that that activity. Hmm. Interesting. So another... The feature, I suppose, of investing in the U.S. are things like uh, wholesalers that will get a property at a severe discount under contract and then sell the contract to an investor. Again, it is severe discount, but there's usually major value add that's required. There's a reason that it's being sold at a major discount. Does that function still exist in Canada? Is somebody still fulfilling that or do sales kind of tend to be near the you know market rate? That's a strategy that's uh, used quite a bit in our marketplace right now. We're, we've been in an uptrending market, and I'm not exaggerating. <clears throat> I think we've been in an uptrending uh, market for almost uh, 18, 19 years. Wow. And there are investors that use that wholesale strategy, so they'll find something that uh, is, and is typically vacant and is typically very run down, usually smaller uh, wartime era type housing that needs uh, complete uh, renovation, total total rebuild from the inside out, windows, doors, roofs, the whole the whole trip. And there are uh, contracts that 
you can trade your contract to another investor who's going to ultimately close on the property. And then there's a lot of, uh, you know, up here, we call them flippers. I'm sure they call them the same thing down there. They buy it, they renovate it, and then uh, they resell it for a profit. So that that is very much occurring up here because uh, our market is so robust and has been appreciating for many, many years. So speaking of the robustness of the market, one of the things that I kind of noted over time is that a lot of Canada, maybe not where you are, but in in maybe more Western or Northern Canada, the economy is very dependent on oil, right? So is that the case where you are? And I guess, how does that impact the you know, real estate investing uh, market in your case? That's an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting question because a lot of my fellow investors in Ontario don't really see the value in uh, the uh, oil that comes out of Alberta. What they fail to realize is that when that economy was booming and our oil trade was uh, in full bloom before the downturn, we had uh, a lot of revenue that flowed from the province of Alberta into the uh, federal coffers, if you will, or the federal uh, uh, cash till, which was then redistributed to uh, the two largest provinces, Ontario being one of them. And Ontario would use that to pay for their health care and other public services. However, since this uh, oil downturn or the glut of uh, oil available in uh, the global economy and prices have been driven down, Alberta is certainly suffering. However, in Ontario, we have a pretty diverse manufacturing type of economy and a lot of uh, immigration, which was from outside of the country into Ontario as well. So those two you know, there's probably a few more that I'm not mentioning, but those two have really propped up our provincial market in Ontario, as opposed to Alberta, which saw a lot of people that, uh, you know, have been suffering, are unemployed. A lot of uh, commercial landlords uh, are suffering because, you know, a lot of big oil companies um, had, you know, large office space leased you know, those kind of things uh, contributed to a downturn in Alberta. And people don't realize that, uh, you know, our friends in Alberta are suffering and um, inevitably that uh, financial suffer is going to be stretched across the country because the revenues are just not there to support, you know, the public services that we receive like healthcare. Absolutely. It's a tax base. It's uh, the strength of the, the currency on the global market. It's and, and how that corresponds with the prices of commodities and, you know, a rising tide, in my opinion, is is good for all boats. Right. So if an, a particular industry is doing well, that's good news for everybody. Right. Theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. So in, it's uh, interesting. Um, earlier this year, the uh, the oil like uh, I call it, called it an oil shock, and I was just being uh, somewhat sarcastic and uh, maybe a bit insensitive. But um, the oil market took a hit in early uh, February, just around the same time that this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic hit. Yes. And then the government, uh, you know, ordered the uh, economic suspension of uh, our total uh, national economy, and ordered the lockdown. And in place, they offered uh, uh, government financial incentives or helicopter money, if you will, to uh, support people. And we had, uh, 
the CERB, which is uh, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. So that kept a lot of people uh, afloat. The other thing that uh, happened was the banks uh, nationally, the, uh, the federal government asked the banks to, uh, to chip in and they offered these uh, mortgage deferrals. So a mortgage deferral, you know, in Canada will last about, uh, you know, three to six months. Um, some of the larger financial institutions offered six months. So that was in March. Now we're in September. Now we're into uh, October. Now we're into November. Uh, there are some, uh, some fellow landlords that I'm aware of, you know, they didn't communicate to their tenants that there was uh, financial assistance available. There were some landlords that, uh, you know, don't really pay attention to this stuff at all. It just took the uh, mortgage deferral. Well, what do you do now? You know, that, that program's coming to an end. And uh, I think we're, we're yet to see the true impact of those two key, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, driving down those two factors that are driving down the economy. I think we'll probably start to see the true impact in that maybe next spring, certainly into next summer. Yeah, I agree, uh, particularly here in the U.S. as well as as mortgage delinquencies start to come up and foreclosures start to happen. We haven't seen that happen yet, but it's inevitable that stuff's going to run out at some point. And either way, people still aren't working to anywhere near the same extent they were before coronavirus. So it's just basic math. Some people won't be able to make their mortgage payments. Yeah, that's right. And uh, at the time of this recording, we're into uh, mid to late uh, November 2020. And uh, the province of Ontario tomorrow is uh, tomorrow being um, Monday, November the 23rd, we're going to start major lockdowns in uh, two largely populated uh, regional areas, the the city of Toronto, and uh, the region of Peel and the the region of uh, York. So that's, uh, that's a good majority of the population on the north side of uh, Lake Ontario will be in full lockdown. And that includes a lot and uh, all of the small businesses in that area. So a lot of small entrepreneurs will be, you know, there's gonna be a lot of hurt as a result of that. We don't know how long, well, we do know that it's, it's going to be at least a month. However, pre- forecasting models are predicting uh, up to six to 10,000 new cases coming by the time we get to the Christmas period uh, this year. So who knows? Wow, that's wild. I mean, we're, I live in Richmond, Virginia. Listeners uh, mostly know that. And at this point, the governor recently implemented another slight increase in the lockdowns, uh, limiting group sizes and stuff like that, but not major. But my expectation is that they're just getting us used to to cranking up the the restrictions again and i expect more to happen down the line but you know who knows i certainly uh can't predict the future but i know so taylor let's switch it to the positive for a little while yeah let's do it (laughs) so one of the things that i've done through this period is um anytime that the government uh was uh announcing um you know changes in uh, financial incentives or anytime that uh the government was announcing um any kind of programs, I was I was sending a letter to my tenants and communicating to them, you know, complete with uh, internet links to these resources like the CERB in on, Ontario, uh, some counties or uh, some regional territories up here, we're, we're in the county of Simcoe and we have the provincial rent bank. So the provincial rent bank was also an offering 
if if it was needed, the uh, provincial government would cover at least up to three months of uh, rent arrears. So I made sure that my tenants were aware that the uh, city of Aurelia uh, mayor and councillors had a one of their emergency uh, meetings where they invited the public and particularly uh, landlords, both residential and commercial, uh, to to meetings to discuss how they could uh, support us and help us out if we needed it. And I'm happy to report that for the last uh, nine months, like I, I haven't had a single tenant be in in arrears for much more than a few days. I think that was a result of good communication and being proactive before issues uh, came to fruition. And I remember having uh, this conversation with uh, at least 13 other landlords on the uh, Zoom call. And uh, one of the landlords, because, you know, they were saying, well, who's in arrears? And who has arrears that, and they're they're having difficulty making their uh, expense payments. And, you know, probably half of the landlords on on the call were saying, well, I've had, you know, uh, 22 of my 44 tenants not pay and, you know, they were complaining and whatnot. And then uh, one of the counselors asked me, you know, why, what was so different about my approach and why didn't I have any arrears? And I said, very simply, I sent a letter to my tenants and I didn't even get the words out. Another landlord just interjected a letter. I'd never send my tenants a letter. And I didn't bark back. I just thought to myself, well, you know, buddy, that's your problem right there. You know, you're not providing customer service. You're not interested in other people's well-being other than your own. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is a, we found that this is a time where, like you said, customer service is, is so important and keeping people happy is, is critical to keeping collections up and you're getting things fixed still quickly, even though uh, cash flows might be a little tougher than they used to be. Now, one thing I wanted to make sure we covered here uh, in our time is shifting away from COVID a little bit. Oh, for sure. Here in the US, you know, if we want to either scale a real estate portfolio or we want to like passively invest or, or kind of semi less actively invest, we have a number of options. We could lend to a real estate investor, we can syndicate a property, we can invest in a syndication, we could JV, all of those things. And, you know, US and Canada have similar laws, but I could see maybe securities regulations are different. I don't know. But, you know, what's your experience there in scaling a portfolio, you bringing on money, all of that type of thing? And, and you know, how's that work up there? Absolutely. And um, I, I I had my biggest growth in our, in our portfolio in uh, the years 2005, right up to about 2009. And uh, that was in my early investing career when I was part of the Real Estate Investment Network. So um, I learned from a, uh, a mentor out in Alberta, of all places, uh, Tim Johnson, who uh, I heard on an audio from uh, the Real Estate Investment Network talking about, you know, you uh, when you run out of money, then what you bring to the marketplace is your experience. So you find an investor, you find a deal, and then you find an investor that's going to put up the money for down payment, closing costs, and maybe a reserve fund just to carry things for a little while if need be. And, uh, you know, you both go on title, you both go on uh, mortgage, you have a, a legally binding joint venture agreement. In, uh, in Ontario, we call that a co-tenancy and trust agreement. And you ride, the, you ride that thing and... Um, you know, the uh, expert who is the one that uh, is putting up his time and energy to uh, facilitate the deal. And then the investor on the other side who only puts in uh, money and maintains a uh, passive position or a silent partner, if you will, 
we hold on to that for five to seven years. And then when we sell, we return the investors initial capital first, and then we split the new equity 50-50. And uh, that's been a model of uh, my investing for the last uh, 10 or 12 years. At one point, uh, we had over 55 properties and it's worked out, uh, worked out really well. So that's, uh, that's a very basic structure. And in Ontario and in Canada, we do have uh, very sophisticated structures uh, for investing, much like your, the syndicators you know, in the United States who do things with corporations. So we have that opportunity up here as well. It takes a little bit of work and you, you do have to spend the money on legals, but you can have uh, people that invest uh, passively in, into a limited uh, partnership. I think that's what the term is down in the U.S. Uh, up here, it's, it's called something else. I just can't think of it right now, but uh, it, it is much the, much the same format uh, and structure. Uh, we, we watch you guys all the time and we listen to your audios all the time. So I like listening to Robert Kiyosaki. I like listening to Tony, Tony Robbins. And I, I love watching the energy and uh, the charisma from Grant Cardone. So, you know, we're watching all these guys and we're, we're going to our experts and saying, hey, this is a great idea. This is really working well for people in the United States. We want to make sure that we do it legally, but we, we know that we can make that work in here, up here. And uh, for, a, for a lot of investors, it, it is working out quite well. So it sounds very, generally speaking, sounds like the, the process, the strategies are similar. There's some you know, minor differences, but you know, being a neighbors, we have uh, similar laws, similar real estate investing strategies with... Uh, you know, some very important caveats. Uh, yeah, just little to. changes from here and there. And uh, I think it's similar in the U.S. I mean, you know, from state to state, there's different rules and regulations that you have to follow as well. Yeah, awesome. Great. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Jules, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Ah. Are you ready? <laughs> as ready as I'm going to be. All right, awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So the best uh, investment I made was a 38-unit townhouse deal in Aurelia in 2005 after I was just about broke and uh, run down and run out of town because I, was, uh, I had made some, uh, some very poor investment choices. I went to my appraiser and got a promissory note for $5,000. And he charged me 12% interest on this. <laughs> oh boy. And I put the uh, 5,000 down as a deposit check on an offer for 38 townhouses. And then I printed up my investor materials, you know, cash flow projections, photos of the properties. And I went down to Toronto and met with investors and just pitched the deal like day and night until I raised the million and a half for the down payment. At the time I purchased these townhouses for 107,000 a door because of my uh, poor financials. I couldn't qualify a mortgage and I couldn't go on title. My interest was protected by a co-tenancy and trust agreement. So I was a beneficial owner and my investors qualified the mortgage, qualified, went on to title with their corporate entities. And we, uh, we closed that deal in uh, May of uh, 2005. 2015, we we had sold ones and twos uh, on the run up to 2015. Around 2015, we had 22 deals left. One of my key investors split 
the 22 with me. I went out and qualified 11 mortgages. He went out and qualified 11 mortgages and I refinanced the property at a new value of 165,000. And I'm happy to report I'm, I've sold, I've got the last one under contract for a sale of 275,000 coming up uh, in early 2021. So I think that's, that was pretty good for, for, uh, an old cop uh, trying to do some real estate deals. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Yeah. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment uh, you ever made? So in early, uh, early 2003, I was broke, broken, just about run out of a town for, uh, for poor investment choices and not p- maintaining my properties. So I'm just thinking out loud as, as I'm talking to you and 178 Berry Road was a property that I owned in Aurelia. It was run down. It was beat up, but I bought it in uh, early 2003 with the remaining cash that I had left. And I've renovated it over time. So I'm sorry, this probably this story is going to sound like it's not the worst investment, but we maintained um, the tenancies in spite of the condition of the property. And as tenants left, and as we set aside some money and started to get some money in, we would probably replace a floor. We would probably replace a window. And then we'd go back to the bank, refinance and get more money. And, you know, that cycle went on for probably about five, seven years. And I would refinance it about every couple of years. So that was my property was my personal ATM machine. (laughs) And I ultimately... (laughs) Ended up buying it for 113000 which back in 2003, I thought was an absolute fortune. And I ended up selling it, I guess, about, uh, my goodness, probably about six, seven years ago for 257000 And it was just like a home run. So I don't know, is real estate, you know, are there some bad investments to make? I think it's bad not to have a strategic plan going into an investment, but... For me, uh, I was at the right place at the right time uh, without a strategy and the market saved me. So mm. that's kind of probably not quite the answer you're looking for, but you know, that was not one of my proudest moments, but it all worked out in the end anyway. Yeah. Okay. I see. I see the, uh, I see the logic there. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? So two things, um, 90% of uh, this business is uh, screening and selecting uh, qualified tenants uh, to rent your properties to. Uh, make sure that you have uh, considered the uh, demographic and um, the type of people you want to rent to. If it's an, a building with seniors, then stick the seniors. If it's a building with millennials, who are a little more demanding than seniors, then stick with that profile. Um, Otherwise, the other thing I would say is uh, make sure that you have a strategy for a property before you buy the property. So even if it's a, if it's a, you know, a lot of, a lot of my fellow investors in Toronto like to buy pre-construction condominiums. However, they don't uh, realize, you know, that eventually you're going to have to close on that purchase and qualify a mortgage and if you're not intending on living it, then you're going to have to rent it out. And a lot of those investors have been flipping condos, selling them prior to closing to another investor or another uh, owner-occupied purchaser. But now with uh, the shift in the marketplace 
and here we go again, back to the COVID-19 stuff. Um, that's been becoming harder and harder to do for those investors. So uh, there's some turmoil occurring down on the shores of Lake Ontario in those big condominium buildings. Interesting. That'll be a buying opportunity later. <laughs> oh, likely. Well, Jules, thank you for joining us today. If folks want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, they want to talk about you know investing in Canada, whatever, where can they find you? So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Jules McKenzie, J-U-L-E-S-M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. I'm also on Facebook under my name, same name. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Mr. Jules McKenzie, spelled at, the symbol at, M-R-J-U-L-E-S-M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. My uh, Instagram uh, handle is uh, mckenzie.jules, spelled M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot J-U-L-E-S. But uh, my Instagram is mostly my CrossFit show-off stuff, so <laughs> not a whole lot of real estate stuff there. I mostly share articles and whatnot on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and, and Facebook. All right, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us once again and teaching yeah, us. Yeah, thanks about- for having me. I appreciate it very much. My great pleasure to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.